Good morning. Good to see you guys here on this Easter morning. We are uh, been working our way through as a church through the book of Hebrews and uh, are kind of going backwards a little bit. We're starting chapter 13 next week, but going back to this section here for Easter uh, for Hebrews chapter 11. Well, like I said, my name is uh, Chris. I am one of the pastors here uh, at Parkside uh, Bible Church, and uh, I found life in Jesus at the age of 18. Uh, if you're new with us here, uh, if you guys have been a part of the church family, you know my story, but I didn't, I didn't grow up in the church. As a matter of fact, I, lo- I knew little to nothing um, about the Bible, about Jesus, up until I was about 18 years of age. I was the, I was the guy that would watch baseball games back, back in the 80s, and I watched professional baseball games, and would be very frustrated watching the guy behind home plate holding up a sign. I didn't understand why John couldn't find his seat in row three, seat 16. Do you know what I'm talking about, the guy with the sign? I, it boggled my mind until after I was 18, I finally figured out, oh, that's in the Bible. That's where it came from. Um, I remember when I first came to Christ, I had, a, uh, I had uh, lost my job, and I, I opened up the Bible, and I saw in the front, because I always had to go to the index in the front to figure out where they were going, and I saw that there was a book on jobs, or at least a book called Job, and figured that would be a great place to find out where I would, uh, God would help instruct me on how to get a new job. Um, if you've ever read that before, I was sorely disappointed. Um, that guy's life was worse than mine. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go without a job. It's fine. I don't want his life. So, but uh, but I, mean, I remember growing up just being ignorant of all of that. In my household where I grew up, and maybe some of you can resonate with this, but you know, I grew up with a father who was an addict, um, a father who was an abuser. Um, by the age of 13, um, I'd kind of had enough of that and kind of I uh, didn't want to live with that anymore. It got so bad that I took a loaded gun to my dad's head and ready to uh, pull the trigger and end, end his life and mine as well. Um, it's kind of how I grew up. And through my teenage years, I uh, tried everything to find life. tried everything. I tried substances. I tried friends. I tried sports. I tried girls. I tried everything I could find to try to fill that void that was within my soul. At 18, I remember um, sitting there in my bed trying to figure out if I was going to continue to live um, or if I was going to end my life or not. And um, I remember sitting there, and my cousin came to my house, who was one of the only Christians in my family. She came over, and really annoying Christian girl, right? She was the one that just would not leave me alone, uh, wanted me to go to church. And she knocked and knocked and knocked, and finally, through the door, because I wouldn't open it, I said, look, I'll go with you to church if you promise me one thing. She said, whatever it is, just tell me what it is. I said, don't ever ask me again. <laughs> I'll go one time. And I knew she had integrity, so I knew she, if she said yes, she would be uh, faithful to keep that promise, so I did. I went with her on a Wednesday night, and I uh, walked into a, uh, a youth group room. I didn't even know what youth group was, and didn't know that young people got together to study the Bible. And so I walked in that, that, uh, that night on a Wednesday night, and uh, was kind of a little bit scared, to be honest with you. Uh, if you've never really darkened the doors of a church before, it can be kind of scary. And so I walked in there, and I kind of snuck into the back, you know, got bombarded by a bunch of young people um, who welcomed me, and uh, just really was, was amazing. And I sat there and opened the Bible, and I heard the gospel for the first time. I heard that Jesus lived a life I could not possibly dream of living, and then he died the death that I should have died to save me, my creator, um, and give me life. And I remember coming back for a few weeks, and I remember asking a million questions. I don't know if you're one of those people that asks a lot of questions, but I, I still ask a lot of questions. And I remember going to that youth pastor, Adam, I remember sitting down at Pizza Hut, because I remember where it was in Danville, Virginia, and I remember sitting at uh, Pizza Hut, and I probably rattled off a hundred questions to him, right? I'm trying to figure out what this reality of God is and who this Jesus is and what he did. And that was that night uh, that I gave my life to Christ in March of 1995. And uh, I remember 
uh, being completely transformed, me radically transformed, going home, I had to sit my family down on the couch, you know, you got to hear this, thinking that they would be receptive to that um, idea. And, uh, and so I remember, and I, and I remember as I sat there thinking um, I had become alive on the inside, right? Um, I, I thought I didn't know if God cared or not in anything at that, before that time, and then I found out that He did, and that I was separated from God because of my sin. I was dead on the inside, but Jesus, as the Gospels tell us, gave me life and gave me life abundantly. And then that's me. And, and I stand here today to give you the same message I heard when I was 18 years of age um, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, I ask a lot of questions, and that's good. I hope you ask questions. But there are some questions that trump all other questions in life, right? And the question is, did Jesus really live? You ever ask that question? I mean, is this all just kind of made up? Um, did he really die? And then the most important question, did he, did he really rise from the dead? I mean, I'm supposed to believe that some, I mean, I've, I've been to funerals. I've done a lot of funerals. I've never seen someone pop out of that casket, right? You, someone has actually rose again. Actually, someone came back to life. Is that a reality? Is that actually true? Now, many people over the centuries have, have kind of had the same question, have kind of rattled this around and kind of talked about it a lot and come up with alternative theories to who is this Jesus character and where did he come from? And, uh, and, and, but I believe that as we look at some of those, and we'll just real quickly look at five of them, and then we'll jump into our passage to find out the reality of it. But there's, there's a couple of alternatives that people have given. Some of them are kind of humorous, to be honest with you. Some of them may have some weight to them, and we can look at those. But I don't believe any of these alternatives that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. I don't think any of these give a reasonable explanation for the transformed lives that are sitting in this room this very day because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's look at these, these kind of theories. The first one uh, theory is called the, the swoon theory. All right, the swoon theory. This is, uh, I'll give it my own name. This is the um, I get knocked down, but I get up again theory. Uh, you, if you say that with an English accent, it'll stick in your head all day long. Um, it proposes, and this is the theory, it proposes that Jesus, not, he didn't actually die. He actually instead went into a deep coma or swoon, that's uh, what they call that, from the, uh, from the severe pain and trauma of the crucifixion. And, uh, and, and they went through that in uh, 1780, a guy named Karl Barth, not the theologian, uh, suggested that Jesus deliberately faked uh, his death using drugs, roots, shrooms, I don't know, from physician Luke. And uh, he was then resuscitated by Joseph of Arimathea with his own special concoction of smelling salts, right? So they kind of pulled this, all, this thing off. Henry Lincoln, 1982, uh, said that Pilate was bribed to allow Jesus to be taken down from the cross. So the disciples kind of bribed him uh, before Jesus was dead. And in the cool atmosphere of the tomb, uh, with the scent of the burial spices, he, he revived, um, which is curiously about the same time as the Coast commercial jingle back in the 80s, but don't know if he borrowed that or not. <laughs> A few of you get that. Um, so the, uh, the theory goes that when Jesus showed himself to the disciples, uh, who erroneously, erroneously assumed he had risen from the dead, right? So scholars think, Jesus may not have been intended to do this, he may not have meant to, but he kind of got caught up in the hoopla and everybody was so excited thinking he rose again that he kind of went along with it. But this can't be true. Um, the Roman soldiers standing guard over Jesus at the cross were the first people to report that he died. You can re read that back in Matthew 27. And they were experts at, at, uh, at execution. Matter of fact, they would forfeit their own life if the, someone who was condemned to die didn't actually die. So they would lose their own life on that. You can read about that in Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer. Uh, they were so sure that he died, they didn't break his legs, and they, they thrust a spear through his side with blood and water flowing, proving his death. Also, just to think through that, Jesus would have to survive the massive loss of blood from the scourging, the nail wounds, the spear thrust. 
He would have had to survive being wrapped tightly like a mummy in linen cloths and then filled with a good hundred pounds of barrel spices on top of his body. On top of all of that, in his extremely weakened condition, uh, he would have to endure more than 40 hours without water on top of the 40 yard he experienced, managed to unwrap himself, single-handedly roll away a stone that took four kind of Spartan-esque soldiers to kind of move. Uh, he would have to walk out unchallenged and then convince his followers he'd actually been dead and miraculously raised. And then he would have to fool them into thinking uh, that he walked through a closed door. And then the biggest one had to fool them into thinking he ascended into the sky, which even our modern-day kind of special effects guys in Hollywood couldn't pull that one off. Another theory that people give was the theft theory. Uh, This is simple, that Jesus' body was stolen. Uh, I call this the Weekend at Bernie's theory. Um, Some of the young people are like, what is Weekend at Bernie's? Um, That sounds dumb. Uh, The disciples stole the body. And basically, I mean, really, it's a theory, propped up the body of Jesus, making it look like he was really uh, rose from the dead. Uh, this theory exists because, historically, robbing of graves was a big deal back then. It was, so, it was so common that Emperor Claudius, around this time period that the Bible was, the New Testament Gospels were written, uh, meted out uh, convictions to those who were robbing graves. So it was a big problem at the time. People were like, well, that's just what happened to Jesus. Someone stole the body. But if you remember back in the story of the Gospels in Matthew 28, the Jewish leaders tried this one. They, they tried to throw this off as someone stole the body. Now, this assumes that people during that time were loyal to their Messiah, and they were willing to try, try to fool people that they rose from the dead. If you do your history and you read this, you realize that that never happened. I don't know if you knew this or not, but there were many what we call messianic movements during this time. There were other so-called messiahs roaming around Israel and around the Palestine during that time period. And whenever the, the, the leader died, you know, got crucified or got killed, the followers either gave up the rebellion or they went and found another leader, you know, kind of like the minions did, right? Just go find another leader for this. It's kind of how they did it. They never went back and claimed that their leader actually rose from the dead. They never did that unless he actually did, right? This was radical even to consider that at the time. Another theory that's out there is the hallucination theory. Um, this is uh, too much Maxine's chicken and waffles late at night theory. Um, everyone who, who claimed, the idea is everyone who claimed to see Jesus was just hallucinating. They were so hyped up and so excited that he, possibly, he said he was going to rise from the dead that they whipped themselves into a fury, a fury of uh, emotion and they end up believing that he rose again. And they hold that maybe Dr. Luke gave, gave some drugs or whatever may have happened. Um, but now they, that was amazing considering back in Romans, uh, the book of Romans 15, says that 500 people saw Jesus at one time. That's a lot of people like hallucinating. And again, unless they were seeing, you know, looking for uh, disco Jesus or something and at a rave, that wasn't happening, right? They weren't hallucinating. They literally saw Jesus. Two more. The stolen identity theory. This is the Mission Impossible theory. It's the idea that someone impersonated Jesus. Someone just like looked like him, acted like him, um, and made everybody believe that he rose again. But, this was, uh, but if this was true... That person would have to go through a lot, right? They have to go through crucifixion. They would have to mimic Jesus' voice and mannerisms, uh, which would require a highly trained thespian at the time and an amazing makeup artist to go along with that. Uh, This is also assuming that someone was interested in impersonating a broke, homeless, convicted criminal whose group of followers abandoned him and ran away, right? I mean, if you go back to the the crucifixion, everybody left him. Um, I mean, impersonating a king for a kingdom, I get it, but impersonating somebody who everybody left behind doesn't make any sense. Lastly, the uh, fabrication theory. This is kind of the, the unicorn theory here. This is the idea that, you know what, Chris, that's all those arguments you gave is because you're arguing from the Bible. 
The fact is, the Bible is not valid. It's not trustworthy. How do we know these accounts are real? Uh, these accounts may have been written, you know, hundreds of years after the events, changed, modified because of people's political political agenda. Um, maybe you haven't read the Bible before, but you need to understand that the New Testament, when it opens up in the New Testament, it doesn't begin. Um, like Star Wars, right? It doesn't, it doesn't start off with a long time, you know, in a galaxy far, far away. It doesn't start off like a Disney fairy tale. It doesn't go to, start off with once upon a time there was this baby Jesus. Like, it doesn't start like that. If you've never read it, go read it. You'll find out it starts with history. Matter of fact, Matthew starts out with a list of names. I mean, you actually start reading, you're like, wow, this is kind of boring. Like, what is going on here? It's, just a, it's like a Hebrew phone book. I mean, you may not know what a, some of you know what a phone book is, others you don't. A Hebrew contact list in your phone. Um, and so, but it, it does. It starts with a whole list of names, right? It just lists all these. And you're like, why is it doing this? Because it's recording history. Luke's uh, gospel be- begins with, inasmuch as, and he's writing to a guy named Theophilus, and he's talking about research and all the things he's looking up and people he's interviewing. Um, matter of fact, one, one um, guy who was doing, an archaeologist who was doing, uh, examining Luke's references, Luke references 32 countries. 54 cities and nine islands between his two books, Luke and, uh, and Acts. And then without finding a single mistake of those, they were all actual real places and actual locations in which he said they were. The, the Bible is written, guys, as history, not a fairy tale. You say, but it, you know, it's been changed. You know, it's, it's been changed to include these miracles, like the resurrection of Jesus and all the things he did. But again, if that was the case, and, and if you've been here before, you, you know I've, I've, I've argued this before, but if that's the case, then why invent the fact that women were the first witnesses to the resurrection? Now, you, now stick with me for a moment. You may be going like, well, why is that a big deal? That's a good thing, right? Historically speaking, 2,000 years ago, a woman's testimony wasn't even valid in the courts, right? So if they were going to bring up an argument and be like, Jesus rose from the dead, bring your first witnesses out. And it was women. And that's what the Bible says. It was women who did that. They would throw the thing out. They would laugh at this thought 2,000 years ago. But it actually has women as the first ones who actually saw him resurrected, not the kind of pillars of the community, as it were, the male figures at the time. And so we, we find the only possible explanation for why women were depicted as seeing Jesus for the first time as the first witnesses is because, you know what, they were the first ones. Not only that, why would you say that some of, some of the men who followed Jesus so closely doubted the fact that he even rose? You know, the guy named Thomas was one of the disciples. His account, he's one of the guys who was with Jesus for three years, and all of a sudden, Jesus rises from the dead. Thomas goes like, nah, that didn't happen. <laughs> he, doesn't even, he doesn't even want to believe the fact that it happened, right? And then you read the records of the disciples, and they're petty at times. Um, they're jealous, right? They're even cowards in a way, because they all kind of run away at the end and abandon Jesus. Like, why would you put that in the account? That, that undermines the whole story, right? If you're trying to sell something, this is not a good idea, but they weren't trying to sell something. They were just recording history. They were recording exactly what happened. And so there's a lot of passages in the Bible we could go to and look at of Jesus' resurrection. And as a church family, again, we've been studying Hebrews. I'm going to go back to this little section here to argue that one of the greatest evidences that Jesus really did rise from the dead is that we find that how his resurrection transformed the lives of so many people. They lived extraordinary lives. They had extraordinary deaths, and they had extraordinary hope. And those are the three things we're going to look here. And as we look at these things, you have to ask yourself the question, have you personally experienced the resurrected life of Christ? Have you been resurrected? Have you made a new, made alive on the inside because of the resurrection of Christ? Let's look at these. Number one, extraordinary lives. Verse 13 says, these all died in faith 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So the entire chapter, if you don't know this chapter at all and what's going on here, the entire chapter of Hebrews 11 is devoted to just a sampling of people who live kind of these extraordinary lives in light of the resurrection. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, you may go like, but, but Chris, they didn't even know Jesus. Most of these people recorded here were talked about before Jesus was even born. So what are you talking about? They did look forward to him. As a matter of fact, you can, they all died in faith, it says here. Uh, Moses, back in, down, down in verse 26, says he even considered Jesus. Way back in Exodus, he was considering the reproach of Jesus during that time. And so these guys, they, they all died in faith. This means that the goal of life was outside of this life. They believed in something happening after they died, and that something was being, that something was being with Jesus because they knew that he was alive. So the text says here they, they literally embraced that they were strangers and exiles. They didn't just accept this truth. They embraced it is the idea of the language. The followers of Jesus embraced this truth because they saw Jesus was alive, and they knew that they would live too. And once you confess that you're living uh, for the next world, you can live extraordinary lives in this world, which is exactly what the followers of Jesus have done throughout history. To be a stranger in exile during this time in ancient Rome, where they would have been, uh, meant some serious things. The idea is that they were resident aliens, okay? They weren't tourists, but they also weren't citizens. Uh, as, a, as these aliens, they had to uh, pay an alien tax, and they were seen as slaves to the Roman culture. So they were regarded, as we've seen in the book of Hebrews, with hatred and suspicion and contempt, these Christians were. Uh, the word stranger literally is the word they used to refer to a barbarian back in the time of the Roman period. And so it was common thought that these strangers, these Christians, were people that were exiled maybe from another country and brought in. They've done something evil somewhere else, and they were looked at with suspicion. So despite how they were treated, they continued to live in this world and live extraordinary lives, right? They, they had a tremendous influence upon the culture and the Roman culture at the time. They didn't pack up canned goods and camp on top of the rooftops with a surplus of guns and ammo, right, waiting for the apocalypse to happen and hoarding up into a cave or something. They didn't detach themselves from, from the life and work of the world, but they, but they always remember they were people on the way. They were going somewhere else. They lived for another place. This is what it means to live by faith. The promises wrapped up in the resurrection of Jesus meant that they would resurrect too and thus could live extraordinary lives. You say, what is that? Lives, it's out of sync with the culture. Lives that cause them to build, as, as the stories go here, build like basically an ocean liner 500 miles away from any body of water in preparation for a flood. Lives that cause them to build a crib when they were 90 years old away in a promise of a baby. Lives that cause them to endure mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonments, as it says down in verse 36. And if you study the history and development of Christianity, you will find that the main catalyst for growth was the response of Christians, right? They lived for another world which made them live extraordinary lives in this one, which meant they could live radical lives, lives that they, they actually lived and took great risks, right? They dared greatly, as it were, and they, they lived these kind of lives, and Christianity exploded because of that. And we looked at this last week. When the plagues hit the Roman Empire back in the 300s and 400s, everyone in Rome took off running. If you didn't, get, if you didn't have the plague, you left town. You left family, friends, children, parents, doctors, nurses, all that. Everybody left town and left everybody else to die in Rome with the plague, hoping it would go away, and then they would come back. Guess what Christians did? They stayed. 
Those who didn't have the plague, they stayed. Instead of boarding up their houses like the other Romans did, they opened up their doors. And the people who were walking through the streets allowed them to come in, and they, they helped, they took care of them. They, they weren't doctors, they weren't nurses, they gave them water, gave them a place to sleep. Many of them con- contracted the disease themselves and died. But when it was all said and done, and the plague had, had kind of ravished its way through the Roman Empire, the only people left in the Roman Empire at that time were Christians, and those Christians helped. And guess what happened to those whose Christians helped? They looked at those and said, what kind of life are you living? Why would you give up your life, risk your life for mine? And they committed their life to Jesus Christ. They understood the reality of the resurrection of Christ. And the Roman Empire completely turned upside down, completely radically transformed uh, as a whole Roman Empire. If the resurrection of Jesus, as they look at this, if it was a hoax or fabrication, then we have to ask the question, what about the power of such a lie to produce men and women who would give up everything? Uh, to, to follow Jesus. How did they turn from cowards to heroes? It wasn't because of Jesus was a good teacher. It wasn't because Jesus was a nice guy. It surely wasn't because they made money for it or had political gain. My friends, it was because Jesus rose again. It's because he was alive that they were living these radical lives for him. Number two, also they had extraordinary deaths. Down in verse 14 says, for people who speak this way uh, or are seeking a, a homeland. If they were, had been thinking of the land they came from, they would have had opportunity to return, but they desire a better country, it says, a heavenly one. So the writer tells us that the, the people of old didn't look back. Even when times got hard, even when death was knocking, they refused to recant. And this is foolish if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. That's why down in verse 35 of Hebrews 11, it says, women receive back their dead by resurrection, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Why in the world would they do this? They were looking forward to a better resurrection. And even though some would get their dead back by resurrection, we saw a few of those stories in the Gospels, they would still die one day. And so this better resurrection had to do with the final defeat of death. It had to do with the future of being raised to eternal life. And the resurrection is what motivated them to stare death in the face and go through it. Ridicule, prison, torture, death would not stop uh, the people because they knew that because Jesus was raised, my friends, they knew that they would be raised as well. And if I tell you, if I could summon this entire passage of Hebrews 11, if we could get everybody who's gone before us to stand up here on the stage, some of them with spears, some of them with lacerations, some of them holding their head in their hands, they would all tell you today that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And Jesus is real. And Jesus actually rose from the dead. We found life in him. And so we could give our lives for him. And this is what happened to every apostle that was with Jesus they would have extraordinary deaths. You know, all those guys you read in the Gospels, you know, that followed Jesus, his disciples, all those people, not a single one of them, we have record of their deaths, and not a single one of them would recant, meaning, you say, what does that mean? It would, would give up and say, you know what, hey, I was just kidding, you know, sorry, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, please don't kill me, right? We know human nature, we do that, right? If we're about to die and we're holding on to a lie and all we have to do is tell the truth and get out of this one, this is what human nature will do. And we're like, okay, I'll, I'll tell the truth. They didn't do that. Every single one of them died uh, in light of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Matthew would be killed by a sword. Mark would die in Alexandria being dragged uh, through the streets. Luke would be hung by a a large olive tree in Greece. John, permanently scarred by a pot of burning oil and then banished to an island to die alone. Peter would be crucified upside down in Rome. 
James, the half-brother of Jesus, would be killed with a sword and beheaded in Jerusalem. James, the apostle, would be thrown down from a high pinnacle and beaten to death with a club. Philip would be hung. Bartholomew would be scourged and beaten until he died. Andrew would be bound to a cross until he died. Thomas was run through with a lance. Jude, the other half-brother of Jesus, would be killed with executioner arrows. Matthias stoned and beheaded, and Paul beheaded in Rome. Every single one of them died, holding on to the truth that Jesus really lived, and Jesus really died, and Jesus really rose again. And they, they went to death with that promise. They went to death with because they, why'd they do that? Because they really believed and really saw that he was alive. Lastly, they had extraordinary hope. Verse 16 says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So there was something that not even death could take away from the Christians, right? There was this hope that they had. And this hope is not as, not a, you know, I sure hope this is true kind of thing, but a solid conviction that, again, Jesus really did rise from the dead. An assurance that God was not ashamed of them, and he had a new earth for them and a new city for them to dwell in. And it says here they desired this very much. The Word gives us the picture of kind of hands stretched out and reaching kind of idea. Christians are like, they're like an artist drawn to that piece of art they've never produced. Christians are like a musician driven by the concert never yet given. Christians are like an actor. They're propelled by the play not yet performed. And you can see them walking the road of rejection from society with hands out seeking a better country, desiring something better than this world had, has to offer. They knew the resurrection of Jesus offered them all of this, that God was not ashamed of them, and that they found life. But how? We ask the question, what must you do to have God not be ashamed of you? What must you do to have God not be ashamed of you? Do you have to do some great exploit for him to be proud of you? Do you have to uh, achieve some high moral achievement to impress him, do something really, really, really good? No. What does the passage say? Over and over again in Hebrews 11, it says one thing. It was by what? Faith. So you can say that. It's all right. By what? faith. Thank you. It's by faith. It wasn't by effort. It wasn't by achievement. It wasn't by giving. It wasn't by serving. It was by faith. It was belief in the resurrection of Jesus and their desire to be with him. There were no hoops to jump through. There was no candles to burn. There was no offerings to give. There were no paths to walk. They just believed in the resurrection of Jesus and banked everything on it. That's why you get the last words that Buddha ever gave, his last words to his followers was, keep striving. What does that mean? Just keep going. Keep working. Maybe you'll achieve nirvana. Right? Just keep going. Jesus' last words on the cross was what? It is what? Finished. It's done. I, I've completed the work. I've done it for you. I've accomplished everything for you. It's not about you and what you need to do for God. It's about Jesus and what he came to do for you. That is a, a totally different way of looking at the Bible. It's a totally different way of looking at the gospel. It's the difference between heaven and hell. It's not about you and what you have, have, need to do for God. It's about him and what he has done for you. And thus, they didn't debate whether they liked this or that about Jesus' teaching. Uh, they knew that if he rose from the grave, guess what? We got to take the whole thing. <laughs> Whatever Jesus says, we got to do. We're following him now, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, said the following. He said the he said, the Christian way is different. It's harder and easier, he says. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. 
no half measures are any good. I, I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit, and I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. It's a good summary of what Jesus' call in the Gospels. So they knew that because Jesus died for them, and they really rose from the dead, that God would accept them on the faith they had in that basis. They knew that if they stood before God on their own, that they were doomed because of their sin. But Jesus' resurrection conquered all of their sin. This was their foundation. This was their life. This is what caused them to live those extraordinary lives. And that's what caused them to face death the way they did. So have you found that kind of life in Christ? I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not even asking if you like Jesus or don't like Jesus. I'm asking, have you found life in Christ? What are you banking your life on? What is your hope? Is it sure? Is it solid? My friends, this world has no foundations. It's kind of like a, like a tent that will be blown away. The tent pegs one day will come up. You're on this little ball of rock called earth, and we're, we're spinning around through space a million miles an hour right now. And even if we don't hit anything as a planet, someday underneath all of us, there's this trap door called death. It's going to open up. And underneath that trap door is either loving arms of God in Jesus or an eternal abyss of darkness called hell. Those are the only options. It's going to open up. And you have to ask the question, do you think a PhD is going to help you then? Do you think a loving spouse is going to help you? Your bank account, your career, your job, is that going to help you when that door opens up? Leo Tolstoy, one of the greatest writers in history, said the following. He says, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live, as I had found by experience, and it was this. What will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? It's a good question. It's a good question. And friends, if there's no resurrection of Jesus and all, all that we have is a trap door leading to nothingness, right? Then your life and your works are meaningless if that's it. Death will destroy every single thing you've ever lived for. But if underneath that trap Underneath that trap door called death, it opens up as the resurrected Christ, then that means that death has lost its sting. It means death is not an enemy anymore. It's only the beginning of real life for those who have put their faith in Him. That's why Paul would write the following about the resurrection of Christ. He said this in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Have you experienced the resurrected life of Christ? Have you been transformed on the inside? As a church family, we take communion every Sunday. And what we do here is there's bread and there's juice at the tables in the front and the back. And, and we're not, there's nothing magical about it. Nothing to earn any points with God by doing it. There's, there's offerings there as well. We give as a response of worship to Him. As we take those elements, we remember the body and blood of Jesus, broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of Him, and we ask the questions, and we're going to have some quiet time. I'm going to stop talking. We're going to have quiet time in here for you just to reflect. Maybe you haven't talked to God all week. Maybe you haven't talked to God in all month. Maybe 
you haven't talked to God in the entire, this entire year, or maybe you've never talked to God in your entire life. I want to invite you right now to have that opportunity to talk to him. That's what prayer is, just talking to him. Be honest. Be transparent. If you don't know Christ, you've not experienced the resurrection of Christ in your life, not just mental understanding, not just sending to facts like, yes, I understand those facts. Have you been transformed by it? We'll have people here to pray for you. Um, if you. If you know and love Jesus and you are ready, you may come forward to take of the communion and give your offerings as a response as a church family. Um, we'll have some quiet time as the music plays, and then we'll sing a couple songs. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for our time together. Thank you for the resurrection of Christ that we celebrate this morning. Um, Lord, if you were still in the grave and never rose again, this would all be pointless. Um, we could find better things to do with our time on Sunday morning to stand here and talk about stuff that wasn't true. But God, we stand here today and we're here this morning because it is true. Because you did live a life that we could not live. And when you died a death, we should have died to save us, to renew us, to resurrect us on the inside. God, I pray for everyone this morning. I pray that, God, wherever they are with you this morning, that, God, you would uh, work in it through their heart. And God, if they do not know you, they would surrender their life to you this morning. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.